Crossroads is a church for people journeying toward thriving faith in Jesus. We covenant to help people move people through our four objectives. By helping you, your neighbors, and friends discover Jesus by being a vibrant worshiping community that is a trusted presence in greater Baltimore. By making it simple to belong to our church family. By assisting you to identify your unique role to play in God's story and by offering support as you develop a personal faith that functions and serves in today's world. This is our mission. Together, we will help many people, including you and your family, flourish through life's crossroads. Welcome to this week's podcast episode of Through Life's Crossroads, where we are wrestling with the things of life and how it is that we can respond in a Christian way to the, the crossroads that life presents to us. Today I have with me a guest, my friend John Twitchell, a pastor in the Church of the Nazarene who currently works with the Nazarene Foundation. And that sounds all like a whole bunch of fancy titles, but... Uh, <laughs> John, I'd love to welcome you in here and uh, just have you share for just a minute about who who you are and what it is that you do. Well, thanks, Tim, and it's really good to be here. I live in Southern California these days. Uh, that sounds I, rough. It is rough. Um, you know, I came here and it was 32 degrees out this morning when I got up. So I, uh, but I'm originally from Maine, so I'm used to the cold. I just gotten out of practice with it. Pastor down the road from you in Cape Elizabeth, Maine, for several years back when you were also in Maine. I, I was in South Portland, and my understanding is that um, that long time before you and I were even born, that the church I pastored, quote unquote, air quotes, planted the church that you pastored, which was a fancy spiritual way of saying there was a fight. <laughs> Well, I don't know if that was true or not, because I wasn't there. But yeah. whether there was or not, there certainly was missional purpose that was accomplished. And yeah, I absolutely. Think we always agreed it depended on who you asked. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but the, the truth of the matter is God uses those things in remarkable ways. We even go back to, you know, Paul and Barnabas and all of those things. And God uses uh, even our brokenness sometimes to accomplish his purposes. Yeah, absolutely. There were, there were things that your church there in Maine was able to do that mine couldn't do. And there were things that my church was able to do that I think yours was not able. That's absolutely correct. So it's amazing how God uses those different... Uh, and whatever the case was, by the time we were there, everyone liked each other between the two churches. We so. sure <laughs> did like each other and had a lot of fun working on ministry together. But since then, a year down here in Baltimore area, and I am out in sunny Southern California. And what is it that you do for the Nazarene Foundation? So I serve the Church of the Nazarene Foundation as a, a gift planning officer, which is a really fancy way of saying... I get to work with some of God's most generous saints in stewardship and planning generosity, and uh, we call it planned and deferred giving. And so I travel to churches, I preach, I teach, I do workshops, and then sometimes have one-on-one -on -one appointments or, uh, you know, uh, gatherings, get together in small groups, sometimes meet with families, and just begin to dream about how can the church come alongside a family Maybe they have a finance planner, an estate planner, a tax planner, but if the church comes alongside that plan to help them accomplish some of their generosity objectives that God's laid on their hearts too. And sometimes we can do that in some really creative and tax-advantaged ways and ways that just maximize the impact of resources in the ministry. So um, I, think, I think that when you come along with your big title, 
people tend to be afraid that you're heaven's tax man trying to catch up to them, right? You owe money, get money to the church, churches are poor, churches need, and you come strolling into town and you just seem like a fancy person the pastor's gotten in to take more money from people, right? I think that's, uh, you know, you've probably identified some of the challenges of my job really well right there. Right, but that's not what you do, right? I mean, like, you're not... Like, I've not hired you to shake people down. Correct. I am not here fundraising this weekend. I'm really here uh, to think about what does, it, what does it mean to finish well? What does it mean to have critical conversations with our children and our grandchildren about topics of legacy and family values and stewardship of what God has entrusted to our care? And how do we care for the people we love? How do we care for the ministries we love? And how do we do it in a way that really makes the most of what God has put in our hands? I, I think that would be the, the nut, nutshell of what I do. Absolutely so. And I, and I think as I've gotten to know you and see you grow into this role, um, the stories that emerge more and more are win-win situations where um, certainly there is a, a tangible benefit for the kingdom of God, whether it's funding people going to camp in this life and later, or funding a, uh, a, a rebuild of a sanctuary or something like that, but never so in a way that just drains people of what they've worked for. But you work alongside of people so that they can do both and in ways that just putting yourself into the system of the United States tax code would, would take much more. You help people find ways that, um, that listen to their concerns and their dreams for the rest of their life while also listening to their concerns and their dreams for their family and their church, both in and after their life, right? I mean, you find the middle ground between the two. Right. That, that's a great way of putting it. And sometimes I say it this way, the tools of planned and deferred giving actually can help your financial situation, your tax situation, or your estate planning situation. So very often planned giving comes into the picture and not only makes an impact for the kingdom of God, but makes a positive impact for your family, either because it's increasing your income in retirement or it's caring for a loved one at the end of your life, or maybe because it's solving a particular problem in your estate planning or your tax planning. And so it really is a win-win situation where planned giving comes into the picture and often benefits not only the kingdom of God, but an individual or a family to help them as well. That's great. So what makes you unique and special as a pastor, as opposed to someone who ran off to Harvard Law and got a degree in tax law? What, 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 is, it, um, what is it that you bring to the table from your pastoral perspective that allows you to help people in the church? Um, as opposed to, as a, like you trained as a pastor and served as a pastor, but you did not go to Harvard Law to become a tax. What, what, is it, what is it about that perspective that allows you to be such a minister in people's situations in end of life? So you're right, and I, I should identify, I am not an attorney, I am not a CPA, I'm not a tax guy. Uh, that is not my training. My training is as a pastor, and I often say it this way, we often ask the wrong question to the wrong people. So it's not uncommon for us to go call up uh, an attorney, an estate attorney, and say, uh, what should I do? We ask the should question of the attorney. Here's my problem. What should I do? And we ask the attorney to speak an answer to that should question. 
which is really the wrong question, the wrong person to ask the should question. Should questions in our life always ought to be asked of in prayer, in spiritual conversation, in our church family, discerning what God wants us to do, what God is calling us to do. That's the answer to the should question. And that is a pastoral question. It is a spiritual development question. It is a discernment question. Once we've developed the answer to the should question, what should I do, then it's appropriate to invite the tax attorney or the CPA into the scenario and say, how do I accomplish this? So as a pastor, our training really is helping people to discern what God's calling them to do in every area of life. Premarital training uh, and counseling is about helping people discern what they should do. Children's ministry is about helping children grow up into the people that God is calling them to be. Youth ministry, the same. our discipleship processes are about helping people discern the sort of character that God is inviting them to be in the story. And so that is the calling of a pastor is to help people in that spiritual development and discernment. And that comes into play in how do I structure my estate? How do I structure my retirement? These are not isolated, siloed, segmented questions that we go talk to tax professionals about, but we always start those questions in conversation with who God is. The second piece of my training, I think, which most people don't necessarily know until I tell them, you mentioned I served this church that was just six miles down the road from you there in Maine. Now, my church was a small church. Yours was a big church. Um, I'm not jealous about that at all because I loved where God called me and put mm -hmm. me. But part of the nature of where God put me was the requirement that I also worked outside the church in a bivocational type environment to help provide finances. And what I did for about six years, seven years, was to work as a funeral home chaplain and to meet with families after somebody had passed away and discovered in that process that we don't really do a very good job of preparing for end-of-life issues. As a culture, as the American culture, even as the church inside the United States, we don't really do a good job having these critical conversations about end-of-life planning. And in the process of moving and, and serving pastorally for the Nazarene Foundation, it was those skills of working with families going through end-of-life and grief issues uh, that the Lord sort of unlocked and said, you can use these same skills of working with families to help have critical end-of-life conversations. Yeah, which is which is such a, an unfortunate move across Christianity over the last three, four hundred years is um, I, I was raised to think about death only as something that I want to race to know Jesus before I got there. Like, so long as you know Jesus before you die, it'll all be okay. You'll go to heaven, which um, there's not there's not necessarily a theological problem, but there's a massive practical problem there. If that's all that death is, is a, is a race that you don't know where the ending line is, that you're making sure that you know Jesus beforehand, there's all sorts of practical problems. John Wesley, who um, you know, founder of Methodism, was asked one time to, to define what Methodists were. Methodist was not a denomination in his time. It was a movement within the Anglican Church. He was a priest. Um, he, he said that they were a people who died well. In the 1700s, a discipleship issue was thinking about death and doing it well. And in America, 2021, or even in my childhood, 1980s, 1990s America, that kind of language would not have been used in the church. No one would have thought to speak like that, I don't think. Death death was um, 
more often talked in like really flowery funeral languages, right? Like they, um, and sometimes really unhelpful things that, you know, God needed another angel in the choir or all this kind of stuff, which I, I like this vision that Wesley had a whole lot better that this, this fearlessness of death, this, this recognizing that it is a part of life that maybe just as we celebrate birth and see such joy in that, that, that death is every bit a part of the story that birth is, right? We don't want to die. That's not the point, right? Death was what Christ defeated, not what Christ inaugurated. I get all that, but but we've lost the plot in terms of death, I think. And, and certainly in an affluent society like the one we live in, whether you have a lot of cash on hand or you're struggling to build a bill, we live in an affluent society. We want to think we can beat death, right? right? So... So we we will hire 19 specialists, medical specialists, right? Um, we will we will go to yoga studios and spinning classes, all in the name of uh, not letting death get here any quicker than possible, right? Um, but that's not always been how Christians think about it. And reorienting ourselves to be unafraid of death in a way that allows us to talk honestly about it, I, I think is a Christian posture. Sure, absolutely. And and I don't think that means that we have to be reckless either. Absolutely. Right? So I, and I don't hear you saying that, but I do think you can't get to Easter Sunday without going through Good Friday. Yeah. And you don't get to the resurrection without going through death. That is, that is the narrative in which we live. Um, it doesn't mean that we race to get to death quicker, mm -hmm. uh, but there's also this cultural uh, just as you said, this kind of cultural drive to delay death as long as possible. And I think part of that has influenced us in the church. So we are, we are mortality deniers, right? In our, just in our natural being, we don't like to have these conversations. We don't like to talk about death and dying. Uh, and because of that, we put off necessary things to do like wills and trusts and sure. end of life documents and medical powers of attorney and all those things. We just put them off as part of our death denying culture that we live in. We'll do that another time. Um, and and the reality is twofold, I think, that number one, death is coming for all of us. Uh, history says we have a, well, with exception to Enoch and Elijah and Jesus, we're pretty much a 100% mortality rate, and that will continue till Christ returns. Right. One of the, my favorite ways to think about this is Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. But there aren't reports in Israel of a raised Lazarus still running around right. in Jerusalem. As, as far as I know, he died again. Yeah. Um, we don't know exactly what happened. He may have been the rare guy with two yeah. certificates of death. Yeah. But And then the other part of that is, and I think this is really important for me, is that the church is coming to an awareness, and I think it's critical that we do, that kingdom life is also called to be lived out here and now. That That it's not simply that, you know, we die and go to heaven, but there is this calling on us as the people of God to understand and live the kingdom ethic in our living in the here and now, that we have this role and responsibility of stewardship over the world that we're inhabiting, whatever that means, whatever our sphere of influence is, stewardship in our family, of our house, of our property, stewardship of the churches that we belong to, the ministries we care for, our workplace, these are all stewardship issues that have been entrusted to our care. And as Christians, as people in the family of God, as disciples of Christ, we are called to shape and mold those areas 
in God-honoring ways, to shape them in ways that are consistent with the kingdom of God. And so all of that means that when we have these end-of-life critical conversations about estate planning and financial planning and whatever, that's not the purpose. The purpose is, how do I live this kingdom life? How do I shape the way I deal with finances and family in ways that are honoring God? And I do that through all of my planning uh, and all of my living and all of my stewardship over what God's put in my hands. Absolutely. So could we then transition to tell me, tell us a couple of stories of how that's worked out, ways in which you've seen um, just, I, 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 well, let's, let's put it this way. One time you told me, and this blew my mind, that we live in a mostly non-cash society and that churches are working on receiving income in cash only ways. Sure. You blew my mind when you said that. That's absolutely right. I like um, yep. now I can I can debit money out of my account. That's still a cash transition. But I don't if you asked me for a dollar bill right now, I could not help you. Right. And now now people are growing their wealth um, in 401ks and 403bs and commodities and bonds and on and on and on and on and on. No one is growing their wealth anymore by stashing cash in a savings account <laughs> because savings accounts offer like what one half of one percent if you're lucky. If you're lucky, so I think yeah, my my high yield savings account that used to give me one and a quarter percent during the last year, they you know cut interest rates. I think I'm now making 0.4 percent of my high yield savings account. High, that's a high yield. yield online savings account. I'm getting a 0.4 percent annual yield in it, and so you're right. Those are not. You know, we use them because you have to have some liquidity. Uh, I think the number I probably told you is something along the lines of, you know, churches rely 99% on cash gifts. Somewhere between 97 and 99% of what comes into the church offering plates, digital or physical or whatever, I, but it's cash. And yet the American wealth as a whole is about 97% in non-cash assets. Wow. Um, and, and if we think of our own lives, you know, you have property, you have retirement accounts, you have life insurance. Uh, you know, you mentioned all of those stocks, bonds, commodities, digital currency. These things aren't cash. They're all different ways. And so one of the, the roles of the foundation is to um, to help process gifts that don't fit in the offering plate. Yeah. Right. So if you happen to have a brokerage account with some shares of Tesla in it, and Tesla's done really well over the last 10 years, but maybe you think Tesla's hit a plateau, and I'm not giving stock advice because I don't do that, but if you thought that and thought it was time to get out of your Tesla uh, and uh, you wanted to liquidate that, but you were looking at the tax consequences, capital gains tax on all of that, and you said, you know, instead of me giving the church uh, some cash represented from the sale of this Tesla stock, why don't I just talk about giving the church the Tesla stock? and bypass some of those taxes and those uh, expenses. And so the Nazarene Foundation comes alongside with stock donors, but it's not just stocks. Uh, there's so many creative things that we have done uh, with that. We have farmers who routinely, in the process of delivering trailer trucks of grain to their grain silos, grain elevators, uh, they will call us up and say, I'd like to give a trailer of grain to the Nazarene Foundation. 
and so we write down the serial number of the trailer truck in our ledger book and we receive the gift and we write them a receipt and they drive it over to the grain elevator and they say, you know, I've got nine trailers of grain that are mine. They belong to the farm and this trailer of grain here, it belongs to the Nazarene Foundation and here's their phone number and their, you know, wiring numbers for you to send a check. And uh, the farmer sells the grain on our behalf and the elevator operator writes a check and sends it off to the Nazarene Foundation. We put that in a donor advised fund, which is like a small family foundation fund. Uh, and that farmer can use that gift, that trailer of grain to tithe to his church over the next year. And usually he tells us, you know, split this up into 12 equal payments and just send it to my church every month until it's gone. Uh, what the farmer has quite literally done is a very Old Testament uh, principle mm -hmm. of, of tithing on the increase. He has, in fact, really tithed on the grain that he grew this year, but it came for him at significant tax benefit. He was able to gift that uh, as an above-the-line gift. If you or I were able to deduct our charitable giving just like we do our uh, retirement planning or our health insurance, we would. We would jump at it uh -huh. because it would be an above-the-line deduction on our taxes instead of a separate itemized deduction. And that's what the farmer was able to do. And then we've had some, some really fun ones. Uh, we had a guy come to us with some artwork a few years ago, and he had bought some artwork from a 21st century artist. You and I probably, if you know, our kids, uh, your kids coloring on their wall might be more attractive than this particular piece of artwork. Uh, you might hang it on your refrigerator for a couple weeks and then be done with it. But uh, we were able to receive this gift and get it appraised and send it to an auction house and uh, unlock some real assets for the church uh, that this donor had wanted them to go to. We handled all kind of the back office and working with the appraisal and the auctioneer uh, to get the best for the funds that came in and to make a difference in the impact. Wow, that's amazing. And, uh, and and so so basically, what I hear you describing over and over and over is ways in which, again, the church benefits because people want to support their church. But you're not just doing this sort of thing where, you know, I get a salary, I put 10% of it into the offering plate, and I, I get a nice tax deduction at the end of the year because of that, but it still counts as salary in my gross line. You're finding ways in which to legally and helpfully avoid taxes that are often punitive on people's lives so that they can both do what they want to do, it, but do it as generously as possible in a way that offers them benefits, that it's not, it's not all hurt. It's not, it's like, whereas if I came to your house and knocked on your door and said, I need $10,000 to pay for this. Could you give me $10,000? <laughs> that would be $10,000 worth of pain to you. And it wouldn't do anything to your taxes. Sure, it would still sure, look like sure, income, sure. right? Right, right. So I, I, you know, we're not at all about, you know, uh, helping people cheat on their taxes. I wouldn't want anybody to interpret right. that that way because, you know, we are, uh, well, we're just called to live in the country in which we live, and we're called to be part Absolutely. of that. And I, I think that's part of our responsibility as American citizens. But what you're describing is that you understand how taxes work, and you're showing legal ways to do this. Right. Where, I, as as a local pastor, I am clueless about how taxes work beyond like how pastors pay their social security. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like, so, so I say it this way, Uncle Sam derived the tax code in a particular way. Uncle Sam writes the rules, or Congress writes the mm -hmm. rules, but they have created a, a tax plan that is many pages long and very hard for any man to understand. Uh, however, if we are diligent and wise and careful and prudent, 
Uncle Sam has also created ways to help us invest in nonprofits. And the churches are one of those. So Uncle Sam has said nonprofits are important to this country. And as such, we're going to provide certain benefits for nonprofits to do this. And foundations come into play for many nonprofits. Many of your favorite nonprofits probably have their own foundation, which help them process these sorts of gifts. The Nazarene Foundation is here to say the mission of the church is more important than the mission of the zoo or the art museum or the whatever it is. And we want to take those same tools and make them available to the average church-going person who wants to support the ministry of their church, because this is the, the future of the world that God has created is the, the plan to minister and reach that world is through the church. And so we're here as a supporting organization to that. Absolutely. So John, I've heard you tell this story now of a, uh, of an older man. You told it this morning at our little workshop here at Crossroads um, who was, who was nearing death and yet God was working on his heart uh, to make a gift before he went. And uh, could you share just a little bit of that story? Because there's so many parts of it that just grab my heart and my attention. So could you tell us a little bit about his like late in life wrestling with God, what sure. God was asking him to do and how you helped? Yep. So I had come to his church and uh, did a pre preach that morning. And that night, I think we did a little singspiration, you know, him sing. My wife, Melody, had come along and played the piano and we did favorite hymns. And I did a little devotional. He came up to me after the service, the second service. He said, Pastor, can we talk for a minute? I said, of course. Sure. He says, uh, listen, I'm 88 years old. My will is done. My trust is done. I don't want to go see a lawyer again. Uh, he said, but I've just really been wrestling with God. I'm glad you're here this weekend because he's laid something on my heart and I don't know how to do it. He says, but God said, you've taken care of your kids. Your kids are all set. I'd like you to leave a gift to your church. And could you figure out, could you, could you leave a gift to your church? And, and then he kind of repeated to me, <laughs> it's kind of a common refrain. And, uh, I'm sure you'll have some attorneys listening and I'm grateful for our attorneys who come alongside and help us accomplish the things that God laid on people's hearts. But what he said to me was, my trust is done, my will is done, and I don't want to see a lawyer again. He said that like twice, three times in our conversation. And uh, I know what he was trying to say, but he also really wanted to be obedient to what God had laid on his heart. So, so he and I had this little conversation, and it turns out, I don't want to, I don't want to bore you with all the tax details, Tim, but it turns out he had some stock. And he said, you know, I'm earning some dividend money off from the stock. I like the income. It's about $1,000 a year. Uh, he says, I could give it to my church, but then I'd lose the income. I could sell it, but then I'd pay capital gains tax on it. He says, but maybe that's the thing God wants me to leave to the church. Can you help me do it? Well, we used a tool called a charitable gift annuity. And basically, it let Bob give the gift while he was living. But he retained the right to earn income off from it. And in actuality, we almost tripled his income. He went from you know, a thousand or eleven hundred dollars a year to about three thousand dollars a year in income off from that pile of stock and was able to bypass some of the capital gains tax and all of those wonderful benefits. But the really neat part of it was that Bob was able to use that gift annuity to be obedient to what God had laid on his heart. He didn't have to go see a lawyer. What he did was he had his brokerage transfer the stock to us. We wrote this annuity contract, which gave him an attractive payment, guaranteed, fixed rate for the rest of his life, predictable. He knew what he was going to get. And at the end of his life, whatever was left in that annuity contract was going to go to his church. And uh, so whenever I tell Bob's story, I always say, you know, he, he got bypassing capital gains. He increased his income. He got a charitable deduction on his taxes th that year. It was a real win-win-win for Bob. But the most important part was 
God had asked him to do this thing. He'd been wrestling with God to do it, didn't know how to do it. And we were able to step in and help him do it. Well, at some point, Bob came to the end of his life and the annuity contract concluded and we were able to write a check to Bob's church and it made a real difference in the life of that church. I ran into his family um, probably, I don't know, nine months to a year or so after his passing, ran into some of his kids and we got to talking and conversing about this and Bob's gift. And one of them said to me, he said, and it kind of stuck with me a little bit. He said, we think, we think that Bob making that decision was what released him to come to the end of his life, that he'd been wrestling with this and knew that God wanted him to do something. And your meeting with him and helping him do this thing that God had asked him to do allowed him to know that all of his ducks were in a row, everything was taken care of. And that was what released him to do that. And it was a real powerful moment for me. Um, we talked about earlier, we talked about not being death deniers, that as a culture, uh, it's easy for us to just put off death. But the reality is, as Christians, as disciples of Christ, it's not something for us to be afraid of. And we want to do it well. And if we're going to be good stewards of what God has put in our hands during our life, we also want to be good stewards of what God's put in our hands at the end of our life. And as Bob's family reflected to me what they understood had happened in Bob's life in these critical and crucial stewardship moments, what we enabled Bob to do was to exercise that level of stewardship and care and generosity in his passing that he'd been able to do through all of his life. Um, and it was a powerful moment for me to recognize that the foundation was right in that, that sweet spot of being able to be pastoral to an individual. Um, this is where the, the guy with the Harvard tax law degree may not have been able to provide the level of care that the foundation was able to provide and to help somebody through that critical chapter uh, in their life. And it was just a real blessing to be part of Bob's story. In that that is a beautiful story as well. And it kind of brings us full circle in so many ways. And so as we head out, I, I want to talk just a little bit about why it is we do stewardship. Now, um, I, I think just as, as people are uncomfortable talking about death or uncomfortable talking about money, <laughs> and pastors aren't magically more comfortable talking <laughs> about money than other people are. And so um, so I, I just want to leave you with kind of a why question. Um, the simple answer to why is it that we talk about money in the church is just that it costs money to run a church. Hmm. That's simple. It, it does. That's true. You, you, you have mortgages and light payments and uh, salaries, and there's no way you can run a church without money. So there's the simple question. But the question that I'm interested in is why from the giving point of view? What, what, is, what is it about the Christian life? that invites us to participate in these financial parts of the church. Why are we compelled to be generous? Why are we compelled to have a heart for stewardship? Rather than just saying, well, because the Bible tells me so, and sure it does, but more like what's the theology of why it is that, that we're called to be a generous person? So I live in San Diego. And my wife and I love visiting the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Safari Park. And that's what we do on days off. And it's just something we love. And most people don't know this, but the San Diego Zoo is actually a major nonprofit. 
they have a fundraising arm, they have their own foundation, and they have a mission to accomplish. And they are not shy or apologetic about that at all. But I will tell you that the San Diego Zoo and Safari Park do not ask you to give money so that they can pay the light bill and the food for the animals in the zoo. Mm -hmm. They have a mission as a zoo and safari park, which is to end extinction. If you ask the San Diego Zoo, what's your mission? They say, our mission is to end extinction. And when they ask people for money, they are asking for money to save rhinos in Africa to end extinction. Uh, that's their mission. And it is an important and a compelling mission that people will give money to. That's interesting because it costs more as a family of four to go to the San Diego Zoo than it does to write a tithe check. Uh, that is absolutely true. It's one of the most expensive zoos in the country. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I identify that to say this. Man, the mission of the church, and I love the San Diego Zoo, and I believe actually in the mission of ending extinction, uh, mm -hmm. but not to the degree that I believe in the mission of the church, which is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to every corner of the earth. Yeah, that's right. Right. So our mission is so vitally important. So I'm, I'm just going to circle back on that first part and say, so part of why we give is because our mission is so important. And every nonprofit out there is wonderful. Well, they're not all wonderful, but many nonprofits out there are wonderful and important. And I am happy that good Christians and Nazarenes are supportive of them and, and do those things. But at the end of the day, God's not going to save the world by saving the whales or keeping the art museum going. God's saving the world through the people of Christ who live this crucified and resurrected life and shape the world in ways that are honoring to the kingdom of God. That was really not the answer to your question. That was I, great. Just, I just wanted to piggyback on, on that piece. That's one of the reasons why we give. Theologically, for me, and I just, everything for me goes back to Genesis 1 and 2. I am, I, so much of my personal theology is rooted in, so God created man in his own image. And for me, image of God the way in which humanity was created has got to be the core component of why I do everything that I do. And that for me, that understanding, and, and we know that sin happened and the fall happened. And so the image of God was tarnished in humanity, but to know that every one of us, that humanity was created to reflect God's nature, his qualities, his attributes. That is the purpose for which we were created is to be this reflective uh, this reflective body of God's divine nature and attributes to reveal God to the world around us. And so if everything that I do, my creativity, my, my uh, mental activity, my body, my physical activity, my prayer life, my, my participation in the life of the church, these are all designed to be reflective of God. My love for neighbor is designed to be reflective of God. That's why I do those things. That's what holiness is all about, is restoring God's image within us. Well, one of the fundamental natures and attributes of God is that of generosity. We see it in creation, the creation of the world, the creation of the animals, the, the giving of the planet to, in stewardship to Adam and Eve and to their descendants. Uh, we see God's generosity at play. And if we fast forward through scripture, God's generosity just continues to come into play over and over and over again uh, through calling a people and through shaping a people and giving them a land and giving them a place and giving them a name and, and God calling and inviting them to be a blessing to all people, that they would be this conduit of blessing to everybody in the world. And then obviously we see God's generosity most forefront. Uh, in the gift of Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave. 
that he gave Jesus and the gift of Jesus and the, and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, uh, obviously the it is many things. Uh, there are many things that happen in in the incarnation and the atonement. But one of the things that is on display for us is God's incredible heart of generosity for the world that God so loved. Yeah. And so, back to your question, why do we give? If I am to be a child of God, if I am a holy Christian, if I am to be shaped in the image that God created me to be, if I am to be a mirror, a reflection of who God is, then fundamental to that is, among other things, being generous with what God's entrusted to you. Yeah. Generosity is part of my reflection of who God is. And then the second part of that, I think real Well, let quick, me say something about that okay, quickly. Uh, I, I'm just thinking about how God calls us into covenant relationship, right? <laughs> and so we are really, really adept at expecting that God is going to be generous, right? If we lose our job, if we get a diagnosis, if we uh, are, are running short on uh, rent money or uh, payment for tuition, we are really, really clear that God is generous because we go to God in prayer asking for his help. And you're making this point that God is a relational God that invites us to match his personality and that his personality, his character is so stamped on us that our character matches his. And so if we're going to expect that God is generous, it is not ridiculous for God to expect that we are generous because we are relationally in tune with God. Right. And so like it or not, and we could have this argument, God's plan for the world is the church. Right. And the church is far from perfect. The church is not as reliable as the heart of God is reliable, <laughs> no doubt. But this is God's plan for the world, is to establish the church through the followers of Jesus, to which we have been handed the keys of this time and place and moment. And so if we're going to be generous to God, it seems like the church is the avenue which God has planned. Absolutely. So if, so if I am the one in need and I'm the one who's lost a job or needs food on my table to feed my kids, and I am anticipating, expecting, praying for God's generosity to care for me in that moment, which is a reasonable request reasonable, because that's yes. how God has revealed himself to be. The answer to that prayer, I think I will say always, I think I can say always, the answer to that prayer is always mediated through another person. I mean, I don't, I don't know of any modern day stories of somebody coming home and there being groceries on the table that were not provided through a person. Right. Even if we think in terms of Elijah and the widow, God mediated the gift, the miracle of the oil and the flour for that widow through a person. So God always, I think I can say always, God mediates those gifts of generosity through God's people. Consequently, and people interpret it that way too, right? right. I may know that you were the generous person, but I attribute the story to saying that God has been generous and heard my prayer because he compelled John to show up with groceries. Like, Absolutely. We even tell that story that way. Right. And so what I'm saying is on the other side of that coin, I get to be, you get to be the conduits of generosity that God uses for others. Yeah. And that in doing so, we get to be the reflection of God. We get to be the, the body of Christ with hands and feet accomplishing that for yeah. others. I talked about service in my sermon last week. And in my small group, I had um, a, a lady about my age, young kids like me, say that uh, si signing up to serve was always the hardest thing. Hmm. That once once you hmm. go and serve, 
you walk away with such thrill that you've done it, such joy in your heart. It, the actual choice to be a servant or a steward is the hardest part. When you actually go about doing that, which God calls you to do, so often it's it's joy that becomes a gift. I mean, there is a reward that's reaped that you may not always are able to, to factor into your calculus of decision on the front end. But when God invites you into something, God, God invites you to make less of yourself, sure, but God raises you up as right. well. Right. And so whether it's a financial gift or a time gift or an effort gift or a skill gift, so often in our calculus, we calculate how much it'll cost us, and that's real calculus. But but God has a way of multiplying it into joy and thanksgiving and fun and all sorts of things that, that we're not very good at filtering into our calculus at the beginning, our decision-making. Right. And and the other thing, these these are major decisions, right? People come to me and they're, they're making major gifts often. They're not all major, but many gifts are major. They're gifts of property. They're irrevocable gifts. You know, these are major decisions that people make. But inevitably... They come back and say, God has supplied for me in ways that I could not have imagined. And now I get to be part of this partnership with God. Uh, and so, you know, we've received apartment buildings into charitable trusts, which is a major gift. You're, you're turning over a, quite a bit of your wealth into the care of a trusteeship. Uh, it, the, the foundation will serve as the trustee of those assets and you're going to get some income from them. But you're trusting that these things are going to happen. But you're also trusting that if God has truly called you into this thing, if God has invited you and you're choosing to be obedient to that call, that God is not going to fail you in that. And there's going to be great joy and great satisfaction. And God's going to provide in and through you because you get to you get to partner with being a blessing to all nations, all people, all generosity, all generations. Absolutely. So if anyone is stirred by this or um, thinking that they want to know more or they've got a particular... I don't know, tax situation, uh, donation situation, and they'd like to learn more. Could you give them just a little bit of information of how to contact you? Because you are interested and willing to have side conversations with people, right? Absolutely. That's what I do. In fact, the last year I have not been able to travel very much because of COVID. Uh, it's nice Co to be COVID. What's that? Yeah. Uh, uh, it's nice to be back out on the road. Um, and it's nice to see you in person. I think we tried to schedule this weekend once or twice already. I believe that's right. Yeah. It's really good to be here and do this. Um, but even in the midst of the last year, uh, the foundation has continued to work with individuals, and I've had multiple phone calls and emails and Zoom meetings with people all across the country who said, God's calling us to do something. We're not quite sure how to do it. Can you help? So to answer that question real quick, we have a website, NazareneFoundation.org. On that website, you can read more about the foundation. You can download our newsletter, sign up for our newsletter, download a wills and trusts guide, uh, look at and explore various giving plans from donor advised funds to gift annuities and charitable trusts. But most importantly, what you need is a, a partner to walk with you on the journey. You need a conversation partner. And that's where I'm happy to come into the mix or any of our, our other staff. Uh, but if you'd like to talk with me, uh, NazareneFoundation.org slash contact will get you one way to get in touch with me. My phone number is 207 318 
800-242-3515. It's a main phone number, but I live in Southern California. So I'm on the Pacific time zone. Please don't call me at seven o'clock in the morning. If you live in Baltimore, just wait a little bit. Uh, that'd be all right with me. But a voicemail works too. Or you can send me an email. Email is probably the easiest way to start a conversation. That's jtwitchell, T-W-I-T-C-H-E-L-L, jtwitchell at Foundation. Dot org. And we're just, we're pleased to come alongside of you. Not every conversation results in a planned gift. Right. And you don't make money by them calling. Like you're not going, you're not going to answer the phone and say, okay, uh, if I'm going to help you, this is going to be $500. You're not going to say something right, like right. that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I say it this way. I will always also remind you, I am not an attorney. I am not a CPA. I am not a financial planner. I cannot offer you advice on your legal tax or financial planning scenarios. Having said that, I am also free. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and I am willing to be a conversation partner. I think that's the best way to think of it is I'm a conversation partner with you as you work with your attorney, your finance planner, your tax planner, as we explore some scenarios. Because very often the tools that the planned and deferred giving field brings to the table will help with those other plans or the yeah. other areas. And I know I mean, like pastoral taxes just on a personal level are complex and not normal. And so I, it was always explained to me when I was in seminary, say, don't just go to an average CPA because they may not understand the particularities of pastoral tax. And one of the things I know about you as well is that while you understand things about the tax code that I will never care to understand, you also understand how church finance works in ways that the tax man or the, the CPA or lawyer. Now, that's not to say you're better than any of them. Often these things have to work in concert with one another. But, but you do offer a free service tied to our denomination and our structures that understand both the structures of how people's wealth works and how church finance works, which allows you to be a resource to bring those things together in ways that other resources that'll cost you big bucks won't. Right, right. And, and I would say this too, if, so if you're listening today and you've got a CPA and a lawyer and a finance advisor on your team, Make sure they understand your charitable intentions, your your desire to impact ministry. Because if that team of experts doesn't understand your desire to give money away or to further the mission of the church or to be a generous person, they're not going to structure your financial uh, your financial portfolio in such a way as to do that. And that's a really important piece of information for you to give that team is to say, I am inclined to give resources to the kingdom of God. I am charitably inclined. Please help me make the most of that. And sometimes that's where we come alongside. The most best conversations for me are one where I'm sitting down at the table with an estate attorney and a finance planner and the individual, and we kind of work out a holistic plan that makes everybody feel like we've accomplished what this person has laid on their hearts to do. And we use the best available tools to do it. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us, John. Uh, We're looking forward to having you be our guest preacher this weekend as well. By the time you've heard this, You'd have already heard John preach, and so hopefully that'll help you put a face to the name. But thank you so much for coming out here and helping us out. Thank you for having me. It's been a real delight and joy to be with you, Tim, and to share in the workshops and message and on the podcast today. Thanks so much.
Thank you for joining us for Through Life's Crossroads. This has been a ministry of Crossroads Church with Pastor Jake and Pastor Tim. We encourage you to continue to engage with us online throughout the week on Facebook at Crossroads Church of the Nazarene and also on Instagram, Crossroads Naz Church. Thanks for joining us for this episode.